Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is PC Gamer Executive Editor, Evan Lottie. Evan, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Uh, so if you're here, it can only mean one thing, and that is I really want to talk about a shooter. Heck yes. Uh, and I think this one qualifies as a totally valid uh, Three Moves Ahead topic because it is so historically accurate and uh, and grounded in World War II, and it is uh, very team-based and tactics-based. Uh, so really, I mean, you know, applying the Tom Chick definition of everything is a strategy game, uh, Rising Storm is certainly a strategy game, uh, the latest expansion for Red Orchestra 2. Uh, Evan, you mentioned uh, at E3, actually, you, you asked if I'd been playing this game, and I actually thought I might just end up giving it a miss, because uh, I didn't really feel like I wanted to, you know, hang out with a military shooter anytime soon. Uh, but you were really high on the game, and got me curious about it, and I mean, boy am I glad you did, because it's just, it's it's fantastic. Um, you know, maybe to start us off, you'd explain a little bit about, uh, you know, what Rising Storm is, and then why'd click so hard for you? Yeah, sure thing. So, yeah, like you said, it's a standalone expansion to Red Orchestra 2, created by Tripwire Interactive, the guys that made Killing Floor. It's actually probably their best-known game. Um, so Red Orchestra 2 came out in 2011, and this is sort of a... this uh, Rising Storm was actually a, a project developed by modders that Tripwire worked with the modding team, you know, did a lot of their own development, did a lot of, like, work on the maps, especially in the balance... Uh, to sort of collaborate with them and, and sell it and do profit sharing. So that's kind of a, a unique story in and of itself. But it's a 64-player, multiplayer only, with the exception of a really short tutorial thing, um, multiplayer shooter set in the Pacific, World War II. One of the things that I was really, I had my doubts about was whether or not you could even make a game like this work. I played it at, mm -hmm. uh, I played it at GDC, and, you know, if, if, as you learn more about the, the, the war in the Pacific for as bloody and horrible as it was, um, looked at objectively in terms of the two armies, that should have just been a complete massacre, right? I mean, like, even like playing at GDC, you know, here's, here's what the Americans have, and the Americans just armed to the hilt. Yeah. Uh, just every weapon they have is just made of firepower. And then the Japanese have a really crappy arsenal. Uh, so I was, I was really, I really had my doubts whether you could make a game like this work at all. Uh, but, you know, so, you know, it really worked for you. And I'm, I'm curious uh, how, it, how it overcame that for you. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, you mentioned in your IGN review, I think, that um, the, the Jap you know, all the maps are about attack and defend. They're all objective-based. You know, you have to get a certain amount of guy. You know, you have to have more people on a capture point than the enemy. Capture points are pretty wide, you know, compared to other games. And, you know, that, that's, that's the basic setup. So, but yeah, I mean, because Tripwire is concerned with authenticity and realism to some degree... Uh, Obviously, the, the Japanese aren't carrying around these, like, crazy semi-automatic firing weapons. They, they basically have bolt-action weapons, a Type 38, a Type 99. They have a submachine gun, and, you know, but because, uh, this, and this is actually another interesting thing about Rotocoaster 2, it sort of limits the number of people that can be playing a certain slot on a team. Like, there's basically a composition of that, of that 64, 64 players per team. Like, there, there's only one commander role. You're going to have like maybe 20 riflemen or something. You'll have like three machine gunners, one sniper, and so on. So not everybody can be everything. You know, there, there's sort of a specific composition you have to have. And because of that, most of the guys in the Japanese team are firing these slow-firing, accurate and deadly, but slow-firing bolt-action weapons. 
Um, so how do you balance that against an American team? Again, because Tripwire is concerned with authenticity and just they committed to that feeling of asymmetry where they're carrying the M1 carbine, the M1 Grand, uh, the Thompson submachine gun, all these all these things that can just put lead down range very quickly, very easily. Um, how do you do that? How do you make a game that does that, right? And it turns out that you can apparently if you if you work really hard at it. Um, and I think like you know I mentioned the, the maps at the beginning of this comment. I think they they made a good decision making the Japanese the defenders on almost all of the maps. And what that does is it puts them in a position to sort of be in cover and shoot while the Americans are advancing forward. And you know be, being in that position, it's 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 you know it makes it very easy to snipe a a player that. Um, has to go into iron sights and shoot back at you or something on the run. Yeah, you know, it's... I, I think what I underestimated is um, one of the things the, the, the Japanese have is the bonsai charge, mm -hmm. uh, which is this really... I, I can't think of another shooter that's done anything like this. Uh, it's, it's really unique in my experience. Uh, if there is an officer nearby, uh, nearby the Japanese troops, and he draws his katana and uh, basically holds down, you know, attack and starts sprinting. Uh, it has to sprint in the direction of the enemy. Uh, the, the game reads this as a bonsai charge, a little icon. Your stance icon changes, the so officer leading a charge. And your character just starts screaming his head off. I mean, just like, just you know, it's just this crazy charge. And while he's charging... Uh, he and all the soldiers in a fairly wide area around him uh, are more immune to weapon suppression, uh, more immune to fatigue effects. Um, and what it really enables that goes goes some way to sort of, uh, you know, re addressing the balance of the game is that the Japanese have this this capacity to make these really sudden uh, sort of knockout punches uh, that the Americans, you know, if the, if the Americans are sort of like about using their firepower to sort of grind it out and whittle forward, like, you know, they can rely on attrition to win them the battle. The Japanese have this power uh, just to suddenly rear up and just kick a whole lot of ass. And it, it's it's really fun to be a part of these charges too, because it's just like every like the uh, I think the other soldiers start screaming as well if they're in the in the aura range, and so everywhere it's just it's just screaming, running, uh, you know, and and then bayonets in dudes' faces. Uh, it's it's really cool, but it also gives um it it, it allows for some really cool and sudden swings in in these in these battles where. You know, I, I I I compare it to some other capture point um, FPSs, and it's like once that point has fallen, you know, the action s shifts really quickly. Uh, with with the with 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 what the Japanese can do, uh, it, it's like there's this this brief window that opens after every point capture, uh, where the the attack the the action is going to get really furious uh, for a bit if the Japanese team is coordinated at all. Uh, so. I was I was really impressed with how that that one little touch uh, made it made it uh, more of a fair fight. Uh, but it also means these two teams don't play. They are not you are not playing the same game on the Japanese side yeah. as you are the Americans. Yeah, they have their own personality. I mean, for one thing, you know they do have their own uniforms. Obviously, they have their own voice. Uh, they have their own barks, which is kind of a nice touch. Uh, they feel authentic to me, although I don't speak Japanese. Um, and yeah, it, watch a lot of anime, though. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, the, the Bonsley charge, we should talk more about that. It's, it's a really beautiful, elegant mechanic because it, it, it does, it does like three or four different things. And you know, we talked about the difference in weaponry and, you know, the Bonsley charge is almost exclusively used on offense to displace Americans who are in a, you know, in a set position, they're behind cover or something. You see it used mostly on Hanto, which is like the jungle map. Yes. Uh, like the swampy jungle map and Guadalcanal, which is the night map where Japanese are attacking on that map, map as well. Um, and the Americans are like behind sandbags and it evens the odds. I mean, it evens the score because when you're an American, you're being bonsai charged, your, your gun shakes, you know, you, you lose accuracy in a very, you know, in a very literal way. <laughs> um, and, but beyond that, it, it's, it's sort of a, you know, you said, you know, you can't think of anything, any other shooter that has something like this. I totally agree. It's, it's sort of this leap of faith. And, and this sort of really interesting expression of teamwork that gets you outside your comfort zone. Because because so often uh, Red Orchestra 2 and Rising Storm is a game of being prone, getting in position, getting in cover, you know, covering a, a lane or a small corner of the map and just shooting at pixels. You're, I mean, there's a lot of that. These guns are, are pretty accurate at range if you're firing a rifle or bolt action or something. But what this does is it's like, hey, everybody, we need to do this. We need to, like... This isn't going to be effective if I do it by myself. I mean, the the effectiveness of the Bonsai charge increases in radius and and in effectiveness as more people join it. And hearing that like chorus grow, you know, the layering of, of screams and different like some of them are, are like sharp, some of them are flat or something. Um, it's it's a really cool like encouraging moment, and you feel you feel part of a team. You feel like you're you're doing something, and you you're putting your life on the line. And that really connects with. Another part, not something else I love about the game, where there are so many situations where dying is a positive thing. You know, I I charged through, I bonds, I charged through, I got shot. That caused this guy to reload, and the guy behind me died too. But the third guy got him. You know, the third guy got through and got him with his bayonet, and that's just what it took. That's that's war. You know, um, I love that. <laughs> yeah, where where I've seen it actually uh, come in probably the most handy uh, is. We should talk about the Guadalcanal and Hanto maps in a bit because those are the maps where the Japanese are on the offensive, mm-hmm. and we, I think that's that's a special subset of missions in Red Orchestra I kind of want to talk about. Uh, but where I've had a ton of luck is uh, the defensive like countercharge, where the battle is mm-hmm. like just it's it you're start the point is starting to slip away uh, or or it is just gone but it isn't locked yet, uh, and everyone's respawning and if you if you don't do something drastic you're, you're going to lose the point entirely. And so, uh, suddenly someone's just like someone. Someone's just typing or saying over voice chat like bonsai, bonsai, bonsai. And suddenly everyone is just everyone is just going. And what's great about doing it that way is, um, you know, unlike on the maps where the ja- where the Japanese are on the offensive, when you're sort of counterattacking the Americans, by the time they've sort of mostly taken the point, chances are they're already whittled down a little bit. They're already running low on ammo. They're a little you know, a bit disoriented. Um, and then to suddenly be just confronted by, you know, a dozen fresh Japanese troops just, like, racing toward them, and they can't aim suddenly. Their firepower doesn't count for anything. Um, it's it, it, it's it's really cool. It, it, it creates this new dynamic. And I think it's also this really wonderful act of faith in the Red Orchestra 2 community to use this properly. I don't think this is this is not a, the, the, I don't think I don't think Rising yeah. Storm works particularly well as just a pub game uh between like just you know 
random casual players. Uh, but that's not the community that's built up around this. Um, and, and so when you're when you're when you're in these games, you have to look hard for people who play fairly regularly. Uh, these powers, which I think would be that require a lot of coordination, it would be very hard to get them to work in, you know, say a game of like Battlefield. Uh, you know, if you were suddenly to transport these into a completely different context, it'd be very hard to get these to work. But in Rising Storm, uh, you know, you you have a community that's sort of used to playing as a team, uh, and you have a game really that doesn't allow you to play it any other way. I mean, one of the things it does, and this is something that Red Orchestra 2 didn't do, actually, your your deaths are not listed on the scoreboard. Um, so when you hit tab and you you know you want to see what the points are or whatnot, you don't see how many times you died. And I think that's a really significant, small but significant change uh, to get you know to get that certain set of players out of that kill death mindset, out of like me playing this game is a matter of racking up as many points as possible, and. I'm one of those players sometimes. I'm definitely one of those players in, like, Tribes, for example, or Call of Duty, or Battlefield. And, um, you know, it, it's still giving you a sense of your progress. You, there are still, like, these team points that you get from, like, kill assists and things like that, or capturing a point. But not seeing how many times you died, I think, is a really, I don't know, a, a small but significant design decision there. Yeah, and uh, the, the way it primarily measures success is points. Uh, you know, and you get points for doing stuff that's good for your team. And actually, like, kills are really kind of just incidental. You don't get particularly richly rewarded uh, for, for racking up kills. Um, but you get crazy rewards if you are killing the enemy in a, in a capture point or killing them from a capture point right. or giving ammunition to a friend. Uh, and so, you know, your most successful games are rarely the ones where you just sort of lone wolfed it and went to stack up bodies. Your most successful games are when you were sort of fighting shoulder to shoulder uh, with the other guys in your squad. And at that point, you know, those are the guys who have a lock on the top of the, uh, you know, on the top of the chart. And I, I think that is, uh, you know, I, that had sort of gone by, by me, actually, that they, they didn't have KDA listed there. Uh, but, yeah, that, that is absolutely, uh, it, it creates such a positive framing around uh, your experience with the game. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, as we've seen with some of the stuff that, like, Riot is doing with uh, player behavior and such, like, so much of multiplayer community uh, you know, interactions are based on expectations. How, how, do, you, how do you frame it? Uh, and having it, having Red Orchestra there every round saying, no, what matters is teamwork. Um, it seems to have really paid off, because most games I've, I've played in work mostly as advertised. Yeah. And somehow, I mean, somehow Rising Storm finds that balance of being a 64-player game, you know, pretty sizable maps, and but, I don't know, individual moments, individual shots feel important. Every, you know, we can talk about the flamethrower, and I, I love the way you, that you talked about the flamethrower in your review, and I think we feel very similarly about it. But every, every time as a Japanese soldier, I get in a position to shoot a, a flamethrower soldier, and this is, you know, one of the special, actually, asymmetrical classes um, on the American side, yeah, you know, you know, he has that like sort of flamethrower backpack that he carries around. Yeah. It's very recognizable, very distinct. My, I, I sort of have the experience, the emotional feeling of like my eyes lighting up. Like this is an opportunity to take someone off the battlefield that has an immense capacity to take my friends away, basically. And every time I knock one of those guys down, it's just this instant feeling of self-esteem that I know I saved lives. And, and it's, and it's, you know, again, it, it's a game where per over an individual round, a round might be 15 minutes. Um, I think each side, depending on the map, has four or 500 lives or so. But, you know, tickets shared between 
mm-hmm. your individual your team. So there's a, you know there's a lot of killing happening, but those individual moments, those those shots that like I have to make this shot happens to me. That that, that feeling happens to me again and again and again throughout a round, and that's that's a special thing for Tripwire to have created. I think in a in a larger scale shooter. Yeah, and I, I think the converse of the flamethrower moment too, where you you have to make the shot and you're not making it. You know, when you get the bolt action rifle and you start out at long range, you see that guy like darting between cover and everything, and you know, first shot misses, the guy's still coming closer, he's still approaching your lines. Second shot, third shot, he's still standing. Now you can actually like see the dude's face and it, like that rising tide of panic because you're like, okay, one round left in the uh, one round left in the clip, I've got to bring him down or it's curtains. Um, and I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the the size of these matches too, because I think this is something that uh, you know I, I I didn't really get into in, in my review, but perhaps should have. I think we both had the experience where 64 players is rarely, if ever, the optimal size for a shooter map. Yeah. Uh, usually they feel too big, almost like too sparsely populated. Um, it's hard to get any sort of context for what's going on. I have never had that in, and I played a ton of 64 player matches where like, mm-hmm. like every spot was occupied by a human and the game just sort of seems to scale perfectly, no matter how many people are really playing, uh, you know, be it a 32 player game or a 64 player game. It, it still has this, this feeling of it's not just size for size's sake. It's, the the context makes everything so much more meaningful and you become so much more intimately acquainted with your little corner of the battlefield. And I think that's maybe what uh, Red Orchestra 2 does better than any other shooter I can name is, you know, if you read about like soldiers in combat and such and their experiences, you know, the description is always, you know, well, you you fight for the guy next to you. Uh, there, but the, by and large, there's no awareness that you're part of this huge sprawling battle that's going to go out in the history books. It feels, uh, it's got that sort of red badge of courage thing. It feels disorienting. It feels small. It feels like you've got this, like you're viewing this battle through this narrow little like envelope. Um, and I think that's what makes Red Orchestra too. That's what makes it hold together so well. That's what makes Rising Storm work so well is that you'll, you might have an entire match where you spend most of it you know, covering one flank mm-hmm. and staring at one pile of rubble, and it feels like you did a ton because you did. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, there are those moments of where you feel a certain responsibility to to the part of your map. I was I was fighting on, oh gosh, I guess I was an American on Hanto, like the first capture point, and there's like a yeah. big horizontal wall of sandbags, and I found this sort of nook in the sandbags that like extended sort of jutted jutted toward the Japanese line. Um, I know but, exactly the position yeah, you're talking about. It's, yeah. like, it's like a little tooth. It's a tooth it, that sticks out. Exactly. Um, but it's still protected on either side. And there's a river right you know, right in front of those sandbags. And I'm just in this... I, I, I stumble into this perfect position where I, I can see Japanese feeding into the river. I'm calling them out. I'm knocking them down with a BAR, which is another semi-automatic weapon. Um, and... You know, I guess first of all, like it, it's nice. Like I, I like the sort of streakiness that Rising Storm has naturally, but yeah, there, there are totally those moments where I, I think the only other game I felt this way is like Day, Day of Defeat or something way back in the day, where you you find this spot or you stumble into this this window, this this angle on the enemy that you're like, oh my gosh, this is like this is an insane opportunity. Like 
I have to make make the most of this. Yeah, and I, I think that's you know one reason I, I kind of want to talk about this game on this show is because a lot of times it feels you're playing it a bit like a bit like Planet Side, but I think even more so. It you know you're playing a first person shooter, but it, you're thinking of it almost from this top down perspective. You're not you're not just like seeing what's what your eyes are saying, but you're also trying to sort of see keep the map in your head, and you're looking like on on Hanto, for instance. Um, Hanto is this map where the first capture point is uh, against this river, and the Japanese have to cross this river and climb up a short slope. And on this tiny little ridge, uh, the Americans have have built this really dense network of fortifications. Um, first capture point is the hardest capture point in the game uh, in on that map. If yep. the Japanese can take it, they've got a really good chance at running the table, but the Americans have a really good chance of stopping them cold right then and there. Uh, but... There is a rock formation on the American right flank uh, that you can actually go all the way around as the Japanese. Uh, and if nobody's watching it, and usually the Americans aren't because it's it's a high-risk strategy, but if you go all the way around this rock formation, you are dropped on the flank of the approach line for reinforcements heading to the American position. And actually, you can work your way very easily into the rear of the trench network and start clearing it out from there. Um and so it's it's one of the it's one of these games where you know you will if you try to loan if you try to do this yourself it's not going to work but if you like call out you know to your to your squad or you know get a group of people together and say look like let's try let's try going out to the left as the japanese let's try to get around these rocks and try to take them from the side and if you manage to make that approach stealthily and come up on their flank um first thing you're gonna do is cut off the reinforcements and the next thing you're gonna do is sort of trap the americans uh you know between the main Japanese advance, and then this little suicide squad. Uh, and it's 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 just it's it's really cool because this is a game that rewards that sort of um, that sort of planning, that sort of coordination, that sort of envisioning the map as a tactical space, uh, viewing yourself as almost like one of those chits on a uh, board game, uh, you know, on a on a war game uh, board. That's that's kind of how it feels is when you're setting up a machine gun or leading a flank movement. Um, it definitely it definitely feels like you're you're not just you're, you know you're not just out for yourself. You are you are taking a new tactical position and going to shift the battlefield. Yeah, I think I, I totally agree with that. I think physical awareness is a huge theme throughout this game. Um, there's a lot of you know there's an unusual amount of because of your fragility you know as an individual sh- soldier compared to battlefield compared to know, even Counter Strike or something where headshots are plentiful. Um, you know, one shot in the leg, one shot in the arm with a high power weapon can take you down. Yeah. There's like a bandaging system, uh, for basically cleaning up your wounds, but in general, you're, you're really fragile. Um, and as a result of that, I think you're hyper aware of what parts of my body am I exposing to the enemy? You know, where are the enemy's eyes? Is my bayonet sticking out? That's the only, this is the only game I've thought something like that. You know, like, is my bayonet sticking out? Is my, is the, just the edge of my helmet sticking out? Um, because, because, yeah, there's, there are like a lot of pieces of cover that are not exactly your height. You know, they're a little bit less. And, um, I don't know the, the other way, you know, it's talking about physical awareness and you're talking about, you know, carving out flanking rounds. That's a great experience. Um, I like the way they handle, you know, every player has access to a, a map, you know, you can hit the M key and there's sort of like the like alphabetical and numerical, uh, rows and columns. So you can yep. say like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of enemy in, you know, E5 or something. Um, but either side can also call in a recon plane every three or four minutes, depending on the map, I think. And that basically, while it's in the air, is going to reveal enemy positions. And, you know, as that's happening, it's, it's not perfect, right? Because you're, 
you're, you're sort of trying to interpret in 3D what's happening on the map and like, okay, I think, I think those enemies are here. And especially on the Japanese side, I play the, uh, the mortar soldier a lot. And on most maps, there's like five or six or so of those. It's basically a porter, port, portable mortar that you can carry around the battlefield and fire like seven rounds of artillery. And you know when that, reca when that recon plane goes up, you know these mechanics are very linked in the game. You basically have to judge in the environment like, okay, how far am I from that position on the map? Um, you know, I'm going to set my range on, the, on my mortar. Is it 70 meters or is it 110? I'm not quite sure. You're trying to get the orientation right. And it takes a lot of intuition, which is like a really, I don't know, kind of a rare thing in, in some shooters. I mean, intuition is present in Counter-Strike. It's present in, I don't know, other games, I guess. But I, I just love that it can happen on the scale. There's sort of this intimate feeling of, I know where the enemy is. I have to guess it with my mortar. I have to like read the map correctly. I have to understand how I look behind this tree. Like, do I want to be prone? Do I want to sort of crawl a foot further? Am I safe? Like, is, is this soft cover? Are these like bushes in front of me? Can the enemy see through that? There's just all these sort of like uncertainty around uh, physical awareness, I guess. Yeah. And I think to the point about the, uh, the knee mortar, um, that is a really satisfying weapon because it does take so much practice and use to sort of figure out like, you know, at the ba you start out just by using almost like a grenade launcher, but as you get really much better with it, you start like firing beyond what you can even see. Um, but a lot of weapons function that way too, where it, there's this wonderful. Um, you know, I guess it's sort of it's, it's sort of a, a skill curve issue, but every weapon it feels like you are getting appreciably better the more you play this game in a, in a way that's really satisfying. Like just a, like knowing how to adjust your sights when you see a target out there moving in the distance. When you first start playing Red Orchestra, you have no idea how far that guy is. And, you know, after logging a lot of hours into it, you see a guy, you know, moving along a ridgeline, and you know to dial in your sights for 300 meters. You know, just like that's that's the thing. But it, you also know it's not perfect, so you're going to actually aim just slightly high, yep. and the bullet drop is going to kill him. Um, and it does. And But every time you do that, every time you do that, you feel like Daniel fucking Boone. Uh, just like you, you, you. There's this wonderful harmony between you and uh, the the weapons. This wonderful reward of genuine expertise and skill. That uh, very few games have the the courage of their convictions to sort of have to make that a part of make that a part of the game. Uh, the the tendency I think is usually to make the weapons more uh, point and shoot, point and shoot. Uh, Red Orchestra completely bucks that, and it becomes a much more interesting game. In part, also, I think, because so many of the shots do miss. Mm -hmm. um, again, you get more of that, you get more of that feeling of being a war where uh, most soldiers miss. Most, most fire is completely ineffectual. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I visited Tripwire a couple times. I actually shot guns with them the last time I was there. Um, and, and they really bring a lot of care to that part of the game. They're definitely just gun enthusiasts and, they spend a lot of time thinking about how do these weapons actually feel, how do they want, how do we want them to feel. Um, I don't know. They've just done such a great job balancing that feeling of authenticity with playability. And I don't know. It, it, there's just something so. <laughs> I think a lot of it comes down to just sort of the granular. And, and, and this is something I could never do, as I could never imagine doing between all these weapons, all these different variables, all these maps, all these sight lines and distances and variables that they have to take into account. Like, so much of the game would be different if, if the timing for some of these weapons from like 
right click to going into iron sights was a little bit faster, a little bit slower. I think the knee mortar especially, like, and the machine guns. The machine guns feel very cumbersome intentionally, right? It takes a second or two to go prone, deploy it, get your iron sights up. The iron sights are really chunky in general. Like, they take, take, take up a lot of visual space, which is, like, another indirect way of balancing it. So these, like, really nice um, sort of intentionally cumbersome aspects to some of the weapons, like, you know, flamethrower, you're a little bit slower. Um, I think it slows you down as you fire a little bit. But they f they feel rooted in authenticity. They don't feel rooted in like just damage. You know, the, why, you know, the, let's let's randomly make the Thompson machine gun do half damage as this bullet, even though it's the same caliber or something. Um, everything feels believable. I don't know, <laughs> especially the maps. I I don't know. And not to go back to the map design, but it's it's such a rare thing to me what they've done, and I I have trouble putting a, a word or a phrase around it. But the the authenticity in the maps, um, it, it just. What's what's lacking from them that is present in so many other shooters, especially ones set in World, World War II, is just a feeling that they were designed by level designers, and they, they you know, Rising Storm's maps lack that so entirely. Uh, they don't have sort of these like bits of geometry. They don't feel sort of like thematic. They don't feel like caricatures. They feel, I mean, Iwo Jima is a really interesting one. Um, it feels gray and bruised and beat up and and really, I, I mean. I can't think of another. It's like a single face of a hill. I mean, what what other shooter has built a map like that? Um, it, it, it's not segmented. You know what I mean? It's it feels like one piece of one environment that you're sort of, as a Japanese soldier, like being backed. You know, having to retreat back up the hill from. And yet, even there, it has so much character. Like the forward position has the seawall mm -hmm. uh, where there's already a place where the Americans have placed breaching charges so there's the crater for guys to go through. Uh, there's some already forward machine gun nests that are half knocked down already by naval artillery fire uh, and if the, if the Japanese can hold on to that they're going to get driven up into sort of bigger pillboxes further up the hill uh, and then by the end you're in this command network of tunnels and large bunkers and it turns into um, almost like door-to-door -door fighting uh, and yet it all feels like it's part of this one continuous whole it's yeah I know exactly what you mean about it not feeling like it's designed it, they do not feel like designed places spaces they do not feel like um, contrived and yet, what's remarkable, remarkable, remarkable about it is, as levels, they fit together, by and large, incredibly well. Each set of capture points has completely different kinds of action taking place around it uh, than the last one did. You know, once, you know, the battle for point B is going to look very different from the battle for point C. And then that's even doubly true now if you jump maps. And, you know, the battle on Saipan looks nothing like Hanto, which looks nothing like Iwo Jima. Uh, all three of those are completely different experiences. Saipan, again, feels like almost a different game. You're, you're playing a completely different kind of shooter on that than you are on, like, Guadalcanal. Absolutely. I, I think I think Saipan, and it, it's sort of an urban, jungle, sunny, outdoor map. Um, probably my favorite like final capture point in the Japanese are defending a rail yard and then usually a warehouse. Yeah. This like enormous sugar mill. And it feels like you're sieging this like tropical factory castle. <laughs> um, and it's cavernous and huge and totally different from the, the rest of the environment that you've you know, you know spent the last 10 or 15 minutes in. Uh, but I, I think the, the, the best change that they made, and yes, it's, it is native to the setting 
between Rudder Crystal 2 and Rising Storm is the elimination of these sort of like multi-floor apartment buildings and, and large structures that just sort of encourage players to... Oh my god, Green Elevator. Yeah, Green Elevator. I remember being like so fascinated with with, uh, with it at the time. You know, uh, when I went to Tripler to, to see it and, and to play Rudder Crystal 2 a couple years ago, you know, they were, they were like, you know, yeah, we were the first Westerners to visit this, this structure. It's based on a real structure in Stalingrad and you know, we went through all this detail. We took all these photos. We spent a lot of time building this, and that was really admirable. But yeah, as a as a design piece, it it was just this huge, enormous thing that there's a lot of like traversal. There was a lot of confusion about what floor I'm on, where I need to be, and you know, it, compare that to Rising Storm, where the flatness of the world just creates this flow and creates this like I can see what's happening ahead of me. Um, I have a sense of where I need to go. I, you know, I I can make an easy decision between going left and right, and yeah, I mean, the Pacific setting, I, I think they found the right setting for their mechanics, ultimately. Yeah, no, I, I would tend to agree. I think, you know, Red Orchestra 2 remains, I think, one of my favorite shooters. I think, that, I think there are some amazing experiences in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Spartanovka map, which is this sort of step village, uh, is just an incredible um uh, just an incredible experience fighting over that fighting over that map. Um, I, I, I think even... Um, uh, you know, even the apartments in Stalingrad, it can be a really difficult map and really disorienting in some of the ways you described. Uh, but I've also just had some incredible matches on that. But I, yeah, I think there's there's such a thing as being so accurate that it just becomes confusing. Like, grain elevators are not something any of us have, most of us have experience with how these things fit together. Yeah. And so every time I stepped into the structure in the original Red Orchestra 2, I felt like I'd gone through a portal to Narnia where nothing made sense. It was like I came in that door and then I had left and went up some stairs and now somehow I'm you know somehow I'm lost in the bowels of this mill and have no idea where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um and that's not something that happens in uh in Rising Storm. You you talked about the end of the uh, Saipan map and uh yeah, it's 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 maybe my favorite example of just how these these battles change from point to point. Like the, the Japanese on Saipan have three defensive positions, three lines basically. Uh, maybe four, but it, what basically the the front line is beachfront. Uh, the Americans are coming straight off the water into this industrial district, but the Japanese are defending a beachhead. Now, there's not much beach, but mm-hmm. you know you do have this one golden moment to sort of get the Americans as they come up. And if you manage to resist the first wave, you can hold up there for a long time. And then the intermediate points are this confusing street fight, uh, you know, in this in this uh, sort of dense, semi-urban environment. Uh, it gets really confusing down there. And then the final point is, yeah, just this castle siege that is completely different, because now I had entire battles take place within that mill, within that sugar mill, mm-hmm. uh, where the Americans are like hold up on one side of the, uh, you know, one side of the warehouse and the Japanese are sort of hold up in the offices and on the catwalks and the two sides are sort of trying to jockey for position within this one building. Um, and it, you know, with the stakes being so high, it's just this incredibly, again, that, again, that intimacy where you, you almost can't believe that you are fighting, you're measuring progress as, okay, we managed to advance from the supervisor's office to the loading dock. You know, congratulations. We captured that <laughs> 25 feet of ground. It's totally true. And, and again, it, it it's, it's definitely a, a part of the game. You know, I, I continually have these experiences on both sides 
you know, American and Japanese, where every kill, every every person I knock down in that sugar mill feels important, like I'm saving a life, like I'm keeping somebody off a point. Um, because it, it gets really hectic and dense and chaotic. It's messy as hell. There's a there's an area that's like a garage there on the left side that the Americans have to go prone to crawl under. You know the one I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. I, I, I bagged like 20 guys trying to <laughs> totally. that. Yeah. And it, and it again, it's like that. It's like that same example of, you know, three guys have to charge in and die before the fourth guy can, can kill the machine gunner who's reloading now. And it just creates those kind of experiences where sacrifice is necessary. And that's a special thing in a shooter where ev- not everyone is playing for themselves. Um, that's true in a lot of games today. Something else I wanted to talk about with this game is I do not think, you know, Unbalanced, I've played this game a lot. I don't think it's a balanced shooter in a lot of ways. I think the game mm-hmm. is really well balanced when the Japanese are on the defensive. I think the defense, defender's advantage uh, largely evens that game out. I, I think looking back on it, it felt like it was about 50-50 who was going to win. On the Japanese attacking maps, uh, I would say that win rate plummeted. Uh, I think the Japanese were lucky. I would say they would be lucky to be getting even 30, 33% on uh, Hanto and Guadalcanal especially. And, you know, so first of all, I mean, do you, th- do you, do you agree with that? Do you, do you think the game sort of begins to, the, the, the balance issues begin to come more to the fore when the Japanese have to do something that's actually a little more tactically complicated? Yeah, perhaps. I think, you know, one of the points I would I would point to, I think it's point C on Guadalcanal. It's like this big sort of officer's building, I guess I want to call it, um, sandbags in front yeah, so of it. It's the we midpoint. We describe it a little bit. The, yeah. the, the Guadalcanal map is the Japanese trying to drive the Americans off uh, the, the airfield they were building mm-hmm. on Guadalcanal. And so it starts out, the Japanese start in the tree line, and they're trying to storm this perimeter. Uh, if they break through the perimeter, then they're sort of in uh, in the in the in sort of the, the middle of the American base, really not quite at the airport, but they're in kind of the uh, yeah officers' messes, medical tents, that sort of thing. Like think of the set of mash that's kind of the middle of the Guadalcanal map. Yeah, I don't know if you know it'd be hard for me to analyze if 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 the map itself is explicitly unbalanced. If you know the Japanese have enough tickets or the right weapons, the right sight lines, the right amount of cover, but I do think you know. Okay, like, you know, we discussed the asymmetry. As an individual, an American is going to be more powerful than a Japanese soldier in general, simply because they're, as an individual, they're generally more able to put more bullets down range faster, and that's a useful thing in this game. But I think the, the maps in those situations become more balanced if the Japanese are utilizing their asymmetrical strengths, which are more reliant on teamwork, more reliant on communication, more reliant on coordination, which... Is is you know a harder thing to manage because you have to communicate, you have to coordinate to in order to achieve a bonsai chart, in order to call in accurate mortar strikes, you have to have people spotting for you, communicating, um, firing in 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 sync, and things like that. So I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like it's and this is really this has been a really interesting and, and like pretty fun experience for me, realizing that. There are a lot of moments where Rising Storm feels unfair to me. I will get killed across the map at 120 meters by a guy who saw my elbow. This happens. This will happen in every match you play. You know, you'll just get shot across the map by somebody you did not see, will never see, didn't know where they are. But for some reason, it feels okay to me. I, I, I typically just shrug that off and I'm like, this is the game I'm playing. It's brutal. I like it. I, I, know, I, I know I have the same power to do that to somebody else. And it, it almost all the time doesn't feel unsatisfying, you know. 
Yeah, that's so that's kind of where I came down to is with regard to the the moments where the game does just feel maybe like it's a little bit stacked against the the Japanese. It was like I, I kind of hit this point where it's like there's moments I can acknowledge that there might be an issue here. Like here on Guadalcanal, especially, it feels like there may be an issue with uh, you know how well the Japanese can get their their tax going. Uh, but ultimately, I just I just didn't care that much, mm-hmm. and I think it, it got me wondering. Maybe and this was maybe the real reason I, I wanted to do the show on uh, do the show on this game is just balance is both hard to come by, uh, you know, in any kind of conflict. Our, our, our friend uh, Bruce Garrick, uh, who's on the show, uh, who's, who's uh, usually on the show for the uh, more hardcore war games that we don't have you on, Evan. Uh, but, but Bruce is fond of saying that, you know, most of military history, uh, you know, the battles aren't fair. They're not balanced. It's very sure. hard to find good, fair scenarios that are engaging for both sides. Um, but I think what Rising Storm does really, really well is it makes that that asymmetry and that un- and that occasional unbalance uh, still feel really rewarding. It gives the game character that it would otherwise lack. And even when the Japanese are sort of struggling to get anything going, uh, you know, on the Hanto map, trying to storm that river and that American line of fortifications, it's not that I'm just getting frustrated because each time, the J- like, if, if you're playing on any sort of functional team, and usually you are... Um, if the Japanese can coordinate between like their commander's artillery strike and the deployment of smoke rounds, and you know, then use using bonsai charge and all, everyone get on the point, you've got a good shot. And there's and and just getting ready for that keeps it interesting. You you, you still might have a long shot; it might still be tough, uh, but it's just it's it's so much more interesting than just having this experience where. It's kind of this series of mirror matches, and the only real difference is just uh, the geometry of the level, which side you're starting on. Yeah. Uh, that's, it, you know, it's, and I think you only get that by daring to be a little bit uh, skewed one way or another. A little bit skewed and a little bit asymmetrical, definitely. I mean, imagine what, what kind of game this would be if the, you know, if both sides could just freely pick each other's weapons. I mean, that's true in some shooters. Uh I don't know, like, I mean, uh, I guess Call of Duty World at War, which is a totally different type of shooter, but set in World War II. And they decided to sort of make everything palette swappable and, like, you know, the Japanese can carry American weapons, you can, you know, customize your class and things like that. Um, But by committing to that asymmetry, the size game personality, you feel there are moments, I'm not going to pretend to understand or relate to the Japanese soldier, (laughs) but, I mean, there are moments where you're like, I have to be brave to get through this battle. I have to charge around that corner and, and yell out loud and hope I stab that guy and get lucky. And he, you know, his hands get shaky and he misses me with his Thompson. That, I mean, that, that kind of experience of feeling would totally not exist if uh, it was a mirror match, like you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, talking about the, the psychology of the Japanese soldier, it's, I was concerned when I was first hearing about some of the things they're doing in this game. The bonsai charge actually left me a little bit concerned, just because like I had this this vague worry that the thing was just going to be like orientalized as hell. Yeah. Uh, that oh yeah, the Jap- the Japanese soldiers are a little more resistant to suppression, and they're a little uh, you know you get you give them the bonsai charge, and they'll just be able to charge forward and shrug off incoming fire because you know that's. That's that's you know what because that Japanese is just naturally braver, more immune to fire. But the thing is, if, you know, again, you look at you you look at 
you know, the historical record, you look at accounts of these battles and like the bonsai charges happened. Like Japanese like Japanese soldiers were willing and able to basically do pickets charge after pickets charge after pickets charge um, in a way that I don't think you'd ever get American soldiers to, to have committed to during that war, at least. Um, and so it, it is one of these cases where, like, it got me wondering a little bit, I guess, what this game is sort of showing you with, with its sort of gamified bonsai charge, though, is the way that because of the weapons you have and because of the things you're sort of forced to uh, to adapt to achieve your objectives, uh, the weird the the weird way you begin weighing risk and reward and the fact that you know through training and experience you can sort of believe now you can sort of understand how this sort of under-equipped army uh, could you know fight so well in the Pacific uh, you know albeit at great cost. Uh, just because that was kind of, you know, the the things they're forced to do to, to adapt to to deal with American firepower, um, they weren't pretty, they weren't easy, but occasionally they were really effective. Mm-hmm. I think we should also touch on uh, the commander role, because uh, you know we sort of start off the show talking about Rising Storm as a strategy game, as a you know a shooter with tactical elements, strategic elements, and that's kind of where they come into play. That's the form they take. There's a single designated team uh, team leader commander role for each team who can, on their own, call in mortar strikes, artillery recon planes. They can uh, do what's called like force respawn. So anybody who's in the dead player queue, you can occasionally you know shove them back into the battle. Um, but interestingly, like he he can't really do these things independently, or he can't do them very effectively independently. He has to, so he, he or the squad leaders and players can spawn on squad leaders. I think there are three per team. Um, they, they're carrying binoculars and they can basically set in, in, you know, in 3D in the environment by looking at a, a part of the environment and I guess left clicking with the binoculars. Um, they can set a artillery marker point basically that the commander can then call in artillery on. So it requires coordination, requires like, hey, squad leaders, I need, you know, you're often heal the commander say, I, I need uh, artillery markers in G5 or something. G5 in like the lower left corner. Um, and meanwhile, the commander's sitting back at a radio and there are radios uh, around the map and they can actually be destroyed, I think, which is interesting. But from those radios, the commander can call in that artillery. He actually has to stay at the radio while it's being called in. He has to stay at the radio while the, the recon plane is... Uh, circling around and even like nice t- there's a, like a nice touch where like you hear them you hear them call out the it's like a, a stock line you don't hear the actual coordinates but he calls in the radio and there's like a delay you know presumably you know, the orders are being given back to base they're being you know the guns are being loaded it's just sort of that like delay which is a nice thing um but it's i, I play that role for the first time or this week I, I usually just enjoy being a rifleman and, and and sort of you know being on the front line and whatnot but it was cool to feel that feeling of responsibility again in a, in a different way because I don't know, in all the other matches that I played, it, it was just so apparent that just how important it is to, to have someone qualified in that role, it makes a huge difference. You know, if they're calling out artillery in the right spot at the right time, if they're doing it, doing it regularly, if they're encouraging people to get off their ass and just get on that point, you know what I mean? Um, and, and this is something I, I sort of brought up as, I guess, a downside in my review that it's it's a really intricate game, but sort of a, a fragile, you know, an intricate and, and amazing game, but one that's sort of fragile and, and relies on 
good people and and a full server uh, to have the best experience possible. Yeah, you know the uh, the commander role. God, there's so many touches. I just I, I just love about it. Like, yeah, talking about the the process of calling in an artillery strike that is never not agonizing for me <laughs> uh, because you you have these brief windows where you know that you know it was, it, was, it was spotted correctly. You know if you can drop rounds on that location, uh, you are basically going to shut down an attack uh, for the next like m- you know two minutes. Um, once those rounds start to fall. But if you miss, if they sweep past where the strike is called, you're, you're done. And so the whole process of getting on the radio, and there's that little delay as uh, you know headquarters responds, and then you're calling in the coordinates for what seems like forever. Uh, and then there's the confirmation, and then finally, finally, the, the, the shots start flying in. Um, and you can be killed during that process too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, until that, until you get confirmation that the the round the the rounds are on their way, uh, you get, the entire thing can be aborted by you getting killed, uh, which always makes for these really like if you're if you're calling from a forward radio, uh, and the position is collapsing around you, and you're sort of calling in the classic like danger close artillery strike. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, that is just terrifying because you're like keeping one eye on the door to your bunker, uh, you know, and just praying nobody walks through it. Uh, while you're calling in the strike, um, and it's just it's it's incredible, and, and sometimes you'll be there on the battlefield, and you'll hear, you know, from from a bunker, you'll hear someone because you, everything these characters say, other characters in the map hear them saying it. Yeah. Uh, so you will hear, you will actually hear a Japanese officer like shouting into a handset, uh, and if you hear that, you're like, oh, okay, uh, I might I either got to go get him right now, or I need to run like hell. There is there are some terrific moments of audio. And audio is used very intelligently, I think, in, in Rising Storm. Um, just talking about the M1 Garand, you know, if if you've watched any World War II movie, you're familiar with the rifle, the sound it makes, the plink, you know, when uh, the, the clip, round. yeah, when the clip is uh, ejected into the air, that like very metallic sound. And not only is that present, and yes, it's a useful piece of information both for the Japanese and the Americans. You know, I. I use it to remind myself, like, I, I get a sense of where my friends are, where my enemies are, if they're reloading. But, and Tripper claims that this is something that actually happened, and I, I Googled it to hopefully try and support it independently. But you can, the Americans can fake that sound by, you know, there, there's a button press, and you essentially, like, hit a clip against your helmet, or that's what it's simulating. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. What what an interesting it's it's that's such an experience of like it's sort of the feeling of like if you ever play that game of I don't know it's just it's such a cool counter. I don't know like who no other I could never see that happening in a Call of Duty game. I could never see that happening in Battlefield. That sort of faint, you know what I mean? Like what a subtle interesting thing. And it just it just represents the amount of trust I think that Tripwire puts in its player base uh to to be creative and have interesting ideas. I mean another example of that real quickly is um so we mentioned the katanas that the commanders and I believe the squad leaders carry on the Japanese side. And just katanas are cool, right? We like swords. Um, and you can pick up other players' weapons. Yeah. And re- realizing this, uh, you know, Tripwire mentioned to me that during beta testing that they noticed certain players started to independently, like um, they was, Japanese players would see a katana on the ground or they would drop a katana and they would use their secondary grenade ability to bury grenades under the ground to create landmines which is unique to the japanese and an american player would see that sword as a, as a trophy essentially in the battlefield like oh i want to pick that up 
um, I'm going to humiliate somebody with this, and they would die picking it up because they would step on a grenade mine. Well, I mean, you know, as as Japanese as as Japanese riflemen, uh, you know, on the Saipan map one day, uh, I just ended up sort of at the edge of the battle uh, this one time, and I killed this American, and I grabbed his M1. Uh, and carried it off and just set up and started firing into the flank and slightly from behind uh, of this American advance. And because people listen to the sound of weapons in this game, usually your audio cue is what you listen for. That's your first. That's the first way you start to localize where a threat mm-hmm. is. Um, and because the M1, M1 has this really incredibly distinctive sound, nobody was ever looking for who was killing them because they never put together the fact that there's a rifle opening up on their left flank with the fact that they were getting killed because, hey, it was an American rifle. Um, and it's just, it, it's stuff like that. And you mentioned, you mentioned the, uh, the grenade mine ability, which is something else you see the Japanese sort of, um, it's sort of a desperation tactic. It's, it's really dangerous once you start littering a battlefield with, uh, homemade percussion mines, but, uh, pressure mines, but it's still, um, it's still something you see, you see happen where the Japanese have these brief, like, okay, we're folding up like a cheap card table. Everybody just bury, like just plant booby traps around the point and then sort of stand clear. And what I lo- what I love about that in particular, and, and this is a, a again a, a small but significant thing. There are a lot of these in, in Rising Storm. Those grenades stay in the ground if you die. So you can have a maximum of two of them deployed. So you can't like plant two, die, plant two, die, and plant two, die, and have like eight or six of them deployed. You can have a maximum of two in the ground. But if you die, they stay in that position. And I just really like that notion of like. I'm going to sacrifice my first life to get these grenades in a position where I know Americans are going to be, and then I'm um, you know. That's that's how I spent that life. I don't know. Cool. <laughs> yeah, and I just I just got to thinking about um oh yeah the, the the one other point I wanted to make I was something I think uh, Red Orchestra Two here's a Stalingrad is really good about uh, actually Rising Red Orchestra has always been really great about this uh, and it continues with this game. I love the look of their games. Uh, hmm. They are so good with lighting and saturation that their games never look quite like reality. They're always sort of these really vivid, uh, almost like hyper-real, you know, very moody maps, I would say. Uh, Red Orchestra, the original Red Orchestra, was especially this way. It felt like you were in this uh, gothic nightmare vision of the Eastern Front. But in this game, I think it's it's used really beautifully because one of the things that gives each of these maps their character is the lighting uh, on each level is so different and it's so dependent on setting like a soldier standing in sort of a shaded doorway is leached of almost all his color uh, just by the shadow and so you'll sit there you know you, you see an American and a Japanese uh, soldier standing there on the map under noonday sun you'll tell the colors right apart you you know exactly who is who yeah. but there are so many settings where y- you catch a glimpse of someone and you know, you're like, okay, did you know? Did I see the? Was the helmet the right way? Uh, did he have those distinctive, uh, like, um, like gaiters that the Japanese soldiers wear around their around their legs? That you know, you start trying to figure out anything because at a glance, it all it, it creates. It's this sort of battle. It's it's this fog of war effect, right? Like it's just this. You can't be sure what you saw, um, and so little things like. 
you talk about hyper awareness of where you were located physically. You also become really hyper aware of, uh, you know, how the light strikes this one part of the level, what something looks like from here as opposed to there. That's a really beautiful observation, Rob. That's very nice. <laughs> I like that very much. And it's totally true. And, and, and it's, and it's very, very often. I mean, because a, a, I think, I don't know, maybe I think most of my, most of my, hitting mouse one experiences in, in, in rising storm are I'm shooting at some I'm, half the time I'm shooting at somebody that doesn't see me half the time I'm shooting at somebody that does see me. It's looking right at me. Um, and in the, in those, that, those latter experiences, it's, there's always that moment of uncertainty of like how, how much more dialed in are they on me as I am on them? Like who's closer, who's about to take that shot. Should I hurry the shot a little bit more and take a, an, a slightly inaccurate shot or should I go for the sure thing? Um, I, I just love the way uncertainty is just so consistent across the experience in Rising Storm. This is one of my favorite things about uh, Red Orchestra 2. Um, so when you shoot somebody, and, and this is a server setting, when you get a kill in Red Orchestra 2 and Rising Storm, it doesn't tell you immediately. There's, yes. like a, there's like a three or four, five second delay. It's you long. Know, yeah, but we're, uh, until it appears in the upper right-hand corner... Uh, with your name tag and their name tag and where you hit him at what range. And that moment of uncertainty is so critical and important and, and special in this game. Um, because there are a lot of moments where you shoot somebody and they're going to cover, you shoot somebody and they go behind a hill, you shoot somebody and did they crouch down to bandage themselves? Or you can only see like, you know, 10 pixels of them at, at 100 meters or something. And, and you really don't know. And there's actually a, vo a voice cue. There's a bark on the American side. There, there might be a couple of them where they say, did I get him? He says it out loud as you shoot them. And you're thinking the same freaking thing. And it's, I don't know, there's such cool alignment there. Um, but it would be a very different game, I think, without that small delay. Again, a small but totally significant thing. You know, that's... There's a weird, there's sort of an uncanniness actually to how well usually in Red Orchestra, my character reflects what I'm feeling. Like mm -hmm. your characters will like draw these like ragged breaths when things are really tense, like if they're trying to you know dial in a long range shot, or they're just like sort of waiting there, and not in combat, but like the threat is always there. And so you're just lying there, and you just sort of hear the guy sort of starting to like ra like raggedly breathe in and out, uh, and it's just it, those little moments just make me like. They, they start to make me almost crawl out of my skin uh, just because it, it, it makes the, the tension so palpable. Now, occasionally, I've had other players get betrayed by their AI bark. Yes. Um, yep. Which I, would, I guess would be frustrating if they knew it. Um, but, I mean, there have been times where I've definitely heard a Japanese sold, like, I thought it was perfectly safe. And then from the other side of this little, like, trench, I hear some guy mutter something in Japanese. And I'm like, well... <laughs> Here goes the grenade. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I, I do like that it's connected to the spotting mechanic. You can hit Z to sort of point at a general area where players are, and it'll create this little temporary map, map marker for people. And you do vocalize when that happens. That's sort of a, a nice cost-benefit um, where you have to decide between telling your friends where enemies are, but you're also going to be revealing yourself to people around you, and that's dangerous. Also, I'm pretty sure it will spot the target whether or not you've identified a friendly or an enemy that's that's what i've wondered yeah is does it show up as a friendly on the map are you like are you giving bad information because there have been times where i've just thought i've seen something and just hit z and i'm not sure how it's being reported yeah i think one of that short the shortcomings of this the shortcomings of the system i think the, the vocalizations are i've definitely shot at something like a tree or a bush 
and seeing if my character says something to determine if there's actually somebody there where I'm not sure. I think I see a shadow, like, you know, the coloration's a little bit off. Is there a guy there? So I shoot in that direction, and my character will say something that will, you know, that, that voice prompt will only trigger if, if somebody's there. I'm like, okay, I need, I need to keep shooting there. I need to put a grenade there or something. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of a cheating thing that I just sort of stumble into occasionally that I'm not crazy about. But uh, otherwise, there's some really good systems in there. I, I know... Uh, the tripwire guys. One of them, uh, one of the their co-founders, this guy named Bill Monk. I remember him yeah. just being really enthusiastic, telling me about the uh, in, in the re- original Red Orchestra two about the 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 Russian and German voices they were building in, and like how how the Russian characters were going to like you know when they're dying, like they'll they'll call out to their mom and things like that. And th- I don't know, there were like occasionally poignant moments where the you know. Um, what you're experiencing, what your character is experiencing, does feel like it aligns in a dramatic way. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, Sean, Sean Anderson and I used to. Uh, we still do occasionally joke, uh, just look at each other and be like, uh, "He's he's on the Gamers the Jobs uh, podcast," but like, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll say like, oh, I, "I kill for a drink of water," because it's just it's, 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 it's these these pathetic things come out of these guys' mouths. Totally. Um, and it, it it changes from level to level too. Like uh, the the Germans on the um, on the uh, what is it the Univermag uh, department mm-hmm. store. Mm-hmm. Um, they know they're not getting out of this. Whether or not you win the battle or not, uh, the German army is defeated. And so these guys just going into battle with this, like, fatalist, like, we don't stand a chance in hell. And so it's like, you'll hear your guy just saying the most despairing shit you've ever heard. Um, and it's it's really cool. Which actually brings me to something else I want to talk about as we, as we sort of wind this down. Um... I am surprised how much I enjoyed this game, and I'm particularly surprised at how much more enjoyable it is in a lot of ways than uh, Heroes of Stalingrad was. And we talked a little bit about the sort of issues of setting uh, that, you know, maybe the levels were a little too complicated in that game, but it also got me thinking about, um, you know, my experience just playing Company of Heroes 2. And that was another case where, you know, again, the Eastern Front this, this is such an iconic setting and seems like it, it should be sort of, a, you know, a bottomless well of inspiration uh, for, uh, for for game design and great gameplay. Um, and yet, you know, it, it, it sort of seems like it's, it's surprisingly difficult to get that right. Uh, whereas something that... Whereas something that seemed like it would be much harder, uh, you know, in this case, Rising Storm, uh, just comes together so beautifully. And I guess I've just been, I've, I've sort of spent the last week puzzling over that. Uh, you know, why, you know, why a setting uh, that's so iconic, uh, you know, is 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 so well known to so many of us, uh, is just is just harder to harder to get harder to have success with. Whereas a sort of um, unbalanced and uh, lesser known one uh, is you know, it has played host to such a great success. Yeah. I would love to hear from either relic or tripwire, you know, talking about their approach to level design, talking about their approach to setting a theme. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, we brought, we've talked about Guadalcanal and, and the lighting, you brought up the lighting specifically and the way they use lighting to distinguish between their different maps. Cause I mean, I, I imagine it'd be very easy to say like, okay, we're, we're in an Island setting. How much can we really do here? Like, there's going to be palm trees, there's going to be water, there's going to be sand. Uh, 
you know, those are the shared elements for the most part. And yet Guadalcanal is this like moonlit, the sky is the color of Prince, you know, purple. <laughs> um, yep. Like there's spotlights that, that sort of carve these like dangerous columns of light through the battlefield that you don't want to walk through because you know you'll get spotted. Um, they, they got really creative and, and took a lot of like cr- strange liberties uh, with, you know, in order to build interesting and distinct maps. And I don't know, that's, that was really admirable to me. Maybe part of it too is, is the, the lack of familiarity kind of works in your favor because then you're not being compared to so many different other possible, uh, you know, sources of material. The, the sure. theaters, uh, lesser known, uh, to to a lot of us, uh, certainly to me, um, and maybe also it's just less encumbered by certainly in Heroes of Stalingrad's case, maybe that was actually encumbered by historical fidelity uh, after mm-hmm. a point where I mean you t- you talked about how proud they were of having sort of recreated uh, the grain elevator, uh, but the problem is you created a structure that I mean hell now I understand why the fight there took you know before freaking forever to uh, wind down because yeah. the whole place was a death trap. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think you can look at the kind of an interesting contrast to that is the Peleliu map in Rising Storm, which is sort of this sprawling, mostly barren, like desert airfield. Um, and if you've seen the Pacific, have you seen the Pacific, Rob? Uh, I have not yet. Oh man. So now that you played Rising Storm and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure you played that map. It's like, Oh no! I played played the hell out of it. Yeah, it's cool. it's almost like a World War One battlefield yeah. in some ways. Like you, you're, again, the Americans are landing on a beach, mm-hmm. uh, but the entire place has been blasted to hell. It's like it's a flatland uh, that's been sort of shot to hell, and that's the one with the oil tanks as well, right? The uh, yeah, uh, that's uh, it starts with a K. I can't pronounce. Oh, Quadrilane, Quadrilane, yeah, yeah, They're a little bit similar, but Peleliu, yeah. you should go watch the Pacific. Uh, there's like three episodes based on that. And, uh, yeah, and, no, no, no. Now I know. Pebble is the one where you start defending this like school type yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the the visual style of that map, you can tell it's totally based on that. And I think they they got a little bit further in saying like, okay, instead of basing this map off the exact geometry, the exact like specific locations, and reproducing that them to scale or something, you know, this wasn't the enti- entirely the case in Red Orchestra Two, but. You know, let's base it on something. I, I, I don't. I think the reference is clear. If you if you watch that episode of the Pacific, I think it's episode six, and play and play the map, you can see like okay, the lighting is the same. Like it, it flows in a similar way. It's very like remindful and thematic of of uh, that show. Peleliu is where I I had my two hundred kill round. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that, was, that was pretty sweet. Now, admittedly, there were a lot of bots in that match, uh, but there was still also a lot of people. Uh, but yeah, I just had the most. Uh, I had the most blessed run of machine gunners luck that mm-hmm. I have ever and probably will ever see. It was just one of those one of those situations where you know sometimes you get in the zone in a shooter and you not only know where everything is, but you know exactly what they're trying to do and where they're like, you know, they disappear, you don't know where they are. Except mm-hmm. then it occurs to you you know exactly where they are and you know exactly what they're doing, you know exactly where they're going to pop out in a minute. And so you just start to set up your machine gun and sure enough, you know, six guys sort of come into the uh, frame and you just got them down. And that was that was yeah, it was the most um yeah, I, I I was basically just a one man uh one man army in that game. It was it was wonderful, but yeah, I, I think 
part you know it probably it, it possibly does help a little bit having source materials like uh you know the pacific just the same way that um you know so much of the uh normandy campaign was sort of a was right. bas- basing their recreations off the work that had been done for band of brothers yeah um but that familiarity is that familiarity is valuable to designers. I mean, players have a point of reference. They have a sense of where they are. They they understand what a trench is. I mean, even simple things like that, like that's a valuable thing. You know, they they have an expectation of how big a trench should be, like what a pillbox is, what a bunker is. Like, you know, those elements have value. And, and I guess you know, I don't have any experience with map design, but a smart designer knows. I think just generally when to leverage those, how to leverage those, but isn't emotionally attached to the idea of recreation um, at, at the expense of interesting experiences, even unbalanced experiences like we discussed earlier. Yeah, and I think, you know, so much of what we talked about this this evening is, is about, like, things that feel really distinct and sort of being willing to mix it up and uh, try very different things all within the same game. And I, and I think, you know, when I reflect on my experience with... Uh, both Company of Heroes 2 and, to an extent, uh, Red Orchestra uh, 2, Heroes of Stalingrad, these are, these are both cases where, it, you know, when we talk, it, it, it's, sort, it, it's sort of trying to be one experience over and over again in, in a lot of ways. I think Heroes of Stalingrad had this problem where a lot of times the same, the same problems cropped up from map to map, um, where, you know they've just thrown so many variables at you. Like, you know, here's a, basically a, a wall of windows. There's windows everywhere in this one building. You can yeah. kill from any one of them and you won't have any chance to see or, so you just have to be paranoid and crawl for 20 minutes. And th- that happens so often in Heroes of Stalingrad and so many different maps um, where, yes, the, the, the Eastern Front's this bloody, uh, difficult campaign, uh, really hard for infantry. But at the same time, you've created that experience on you know, half your map pool. And that becomes, it, 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 you know, if you don't like that, um, it, it start, or, or even if you do, it just starts to grind you down. And I think something Company of Heroes too that, that it starts to stumble across is um, it feels a lot like a Company of Heroes game. Like they were very wary of sort of wrecking that formula, uh, very wary of sort of risking their, their core, their core gameplay, which is why I think a number of people have said, I think quite correctly that the Soviets kind of feel like the Americans, uh, in the original game. Mm. And even the map design doesn't really feel distinctive. Like the, 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 the levels still feel very much like, Okay, so I saw this. I remember this map from when it was a French farming village. I remember this map when from when it was a German, you know, industrial industrial area. Uh, and now it just happens to be in Russia and covered in snow. But it's like what I like about what I think makes Rising Storm work is just this willingness to throw curveball after curveball to the point where the game is is really never quite what you expect uh, over and over again. And that makes it um, just really refreshing from beginning to end and keeps it fresh. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm not as acquainted with the, the relic team, but one thing I point to real quickly, uh, that, you know, having a conversation with trip, trip where, uh, their president, John, John Gibson, something that happened between red orchestra two, they actually did like a game of the year edition where they sort of cleaned up the bugs. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Um, 
but a, a guy that they brought on for that and then to work very heavily on Rising Storm, uh, his name's Elliot Cannon. And he's mm-hmm. a, he was a former, you know, kind of the guy responsible in a lot of ways for the nano suit in Crisis, um, but also huh. did a lot of level design for Epic Games. And he was a former architect. Really interesting guy. He designed uh, Deck 16 for Unreal Tournament. Um, you know, famous map, Morbius, yeah. and a couple of other maps, Leadworks, I guess. Um, and, you know, the way John described when I talked to him when I was introduced to this guy was like, you know, he, this is the guy that built my favorite Unreal Tournament map. I brought him in to sort of be like the, the voice of sort of country, you know, to sort of oppose our ideas and, and say like, no, actually, this is how it's done. To, to sort of be a dissenting voice, not necessarily against Tripwire's penchant for realism and authenticity, but to be just a different voice among them. And I, don't know, I really got that sense about him that he was unafraid to bring his own ideas. And I, I just, it was just interesting to see that as a, as a writer to see a developer go through, through that experience of bringing in someone new and new ideas, consciously trying to, you know, sort of break things apart a little bit and it apparently working out okay in Rising Storm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any idea if they're going to... Uh, do they have anything else in the pipeline after this? Um, so there is a... Let's see. I'm going to type in Google Red Orchestra to World War One mod. It's called Grabenkrieg. Grabenkrieg. So right now it's a mod. Um, 1914 and 1918. And as I understand it, like you know, I, I think Tripwire is... I'm going to be cautious about how I describe this. I don't, I don't think they're committed to producing this as another expansion, but I think they're curious about it potentially. You know, they're going to see how it goes, maybe see how this uh, modding team does. But yeah, you, you can go to their ModDB page, you can see stuff like uh, trench whistles and things like that. Yeah, I just spotted <laughs> that, and that's actually the moment I became sold. Uh, <laughs> yes. No, because no, if the bonsai charge proves it's it's, it's practicable. Right. Uh, I guess so. Like that. Yeah. How do you how do you make an interesting World War game? I don't know. Actually, there's one being made right now. I forget the name of it. Um, right, uh, it's, it's it's something Verdun, right? It's a it's a yeah. Verdun game, and I want to say there's like a weird, uh, that's right, Verdun semi strategic aspect where it's like part. There's phases where you're like building defenses and shit. I think, hmm. oh, interesting. or at least that was. I, I want to say I might be conflating projects, but yeah, and you know, I I think that's something that really amazes me is that I remember when Rising Storm was first sort of uh, proposed. It was almost like this, uh, but wait, there's more add-on <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to Heroes of Stalingrad. I remember, the, I remember the preview you wrote for Piece of Gamer where it was like, and hey, guess what? You know, f- like sometime after the game comes out, you're going to get another expansion for free based by this, based on this, uh, you know, really advanced mod team that sort of brought in-house. Um, and yeah, okay, so you had to pay for it in the end. But what's really amazing is that that went from being this sort of sideline mod to being this really ultra polished uh, main attraction where it just it's benefiting from everything they learned over the course of Heroes of Stalingrad and all the troubleshooting they did there. And uh, it's got this completely different vision uh, that's just that's fantastic. And uh, so that's you know I, I, it's really got me more hopeful for uh, to, to see more out of this franchise because uh, I mean I'll be honest there it's it's really hard for a military shooter to uh, capture my attention but mm-hmm. boy if they were all like this you know <laughs> I'd have a hard time stepping away. I'm glad to hear you feel that way. Yeah, you know I'm, I'm curious not to speculate too much. I'm curious like 
Okay, you know, there's some crossover between the Pacific and, say, a Vietnam setting, but would Rising Storm's mechanics work with faster-firing weapons and things like that? You know, would, doesn't M16 work in a in in, in the Red Orchestra 2 engine? Like, what does that feel like? Um, because, you know, so much of the feel of Rising Storm is wrapped up in slow-firing weapons and opportunities to, re, you know, you know, reload each bullet individually and things like that. But, yeah, I'm really curious to see what they do with it. Um and, and unrelatedly, Tripwire put out a small expansion to uh, a free update to Killing Floor today. So people should check that out, too. All right. So I think that uh, does it for uh, tonight's podcast. Uh, Evan, thanks for uh, staying up late with me to uh, talk about this game. And uh, thanks for urging that I, that I give this one a shot after all. Uh, that's when that's when I finally took uh, took pity on poor Dan Stapleton and agreed to do his <laughs> do his uh, Rising Storm review because uh, surprisingly enough, not a ton of people beating down the door to play hardcore uh, infantry sim. Uh, but oh, man. damn, they should be. I, I totally agree. I mean, this is a sort of game, I and mean, you've you've heard us talk about it on the episode. But um, it's. You know, a lot of people are intimidated by realism, and I don't think they have to be. I think this is this is an example of something. If you if you give it a couple hours, if you watch some video on it, if you take a little bit of time to know the maps, you're going to stop being intimidated and start having a lot of fun and uh, just appreciating it for what it is. All right. So on that note, uh, this has been three moves ahead. Uh, as always, our thanks to Michael Hermes for cutting this episode together, uh, and I hope everyone had or has or had a great Fourth of July, and uh, we'll see you next week. Good night.